found recently in a cave by Israeli archaeologists. Scientists at CERN have announced the discovery with 99.999% certainty that the exposure does exist the so-called God particle. It's hard to imagine that all of this was once underwater. Remnants of a vast ancient lake can still be seen in the distance. In fact, there has never been a radiometric analysis that simply produces ages that validate to the known ages of rocks. Hey, hey, happy Friday. Happy Revenge of the Fifth. Ha ha, I liked that. <laughs> Well, welcome to Quirks and Creation. Um, I'm Elise, and with me as always is the proton to my electron and the catalyst to this chemical reaction, Jess. I love it. Thanks for having me tonight. I am so, so hyped about tonight's show, mostly because I'm a nerd. I love it. I love it. I've been telling you, like, this is something I've always wanted to talk about. I'm so excited for you to tell me about it. <laughs> it's not so scary knowing that you're the one who's going to be telling me what's up. So <laughs> I hope it's not so scary because we got some big questions going into tonight. We're going to talk about uh, is the universe locally real? Uh, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? Like, actually, does it make a sound? And mm. is Schrodinger's cat dead or alive? I mean... Who knows? Big questions, knows? big questions coming at you today. Um, but before we get too started, I do want to give a big shout out to Manuel, who left us uh, such a wonderful review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> it's a podcast. Good listening. Five stars. Thank you so much. Uh, that made my day. Best review ever. That was Best awesome. <laughs> so good. Uh, and just don't forget, if you want to be featured on the show like that, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review, and make sure you take a screenshot and send it to quirksofcreation at gmail.com, and we'll send you a special coupon code. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Okay. Are you ready for this? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. All right. So to answer the question, is the universe locally real? We have to go back about 2,000 years to the very beginning of atomic theory and talk about my guy, Democrates. He looks like Loki high in this picture, though. Yeah. Handsome like, devil. <laughs> very. I mean, for a Greek philosopher, I mean, he's looking pretty good, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I think they were all on something, so. They had to. I mean, it was Greece, right? <laughs> right. Um, but before him was this guy, Paramedes, who described that only being exists and that not being can never be. Uh, I know that sounds like what? Um, but basically, he's saying that nothing can't exist. There, there's no such thing as a void. And he argued that any differentiation or change in being implies what is not. So it's like, if you move from one place to another, there has to be something that you're moving through. You can't just move through nothing. Right. Mm, right. And, and that was generally the accepted principle at the time. Democritus, my guy here on the other hand, was like, um, maybe not though. And he was referred to as an atomist. He believed that there was an incredibly small building block of matter called the atom or atomos in Greek. Mm. Uh, and, Atomists held the belief that there are two fundamentally kinds of realities that compose our world. There are atoms, right? Those building blocks of matter. And then there's void. So he believed that nothing could exist. 
right? That's, that's kind of like <laughs> nothing can exist. Um, there is I, nothing. There is nothing. There is nothing. <laughs> stare into an endless void of nothingness. Um, but he was like one of the first people to actually propose that nothing could exist, but also to propose that something so concrete as an atom could exist because atomos comes from the Greek word or is the Greek word for indivisible. So basically you could have an infinite number in any size or shape with no internal gaps, right? It, it can't be broken up into any smaller pieces or that's what he thought at the time. But outside of those, you could have an infinite void where these atoms are repelling each other or combining into clusters. And this is where we get the first instance of the law of conservation of matter. Matter can't be created or destroyed. It can only change form. And so any changes we experience, any chemical reactions, like chemistry wasn't even a thing at this time. The word chemistry wasn't in the vocabulary yet. <laughs> the fact that the word atom was in the vocabulary yeah. before we even got to chemistry, I think is so cool. That blows my mind. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's not like he could prove it scientifically. It's not like he sat down and started doing these experiments. These were just philosophical ideas. And it took a long, long time for Democritus to be proven right until we get to 1804. It took almost oh. 2,000 years for him to be proven right by my guy here, John Dalton. Hi, John. <laughs> Hi, John. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, I mean, oftentimes in life, we, we, we don't know if we're ever going to be right, but just having 2,000 years pass before you're ever proven, <laughs> I know we don't live that long, but. No, but I was thinking that, like, obviously he was someone of significance, but to have that theory even last that long, you know, cause I'm sure it was kind of, was it just dismissed or was it kind of like, Oh, what a good idea. Right. Like those things happen. He was dismissed. And mm -hmm. I mean, there were some people who kind of got on board and like over time people were more interested in it, but it took until 1804 and John, John Dalton's experiments for him to be truly proven. Right. Hmm. So John Dalton's a big deal. Um, yeah. He noticed that matter always combined in fixed ratios. And he did this um, doing some gas experiments. I won't go into all the details. Otherwise, we'll be here all night if I went into every <laughs> single experiment that was done. Um, but he observed that there could be more than one combination of different elements. And so for the first time in history, Democritus' philosophical claim about atoms was proven true. And this is where we get Dalton's law of atomic theory. And this is the same theory I present to all of my chemistry students that you got to sit down and know. But it's critical to what we're diving into tonight. So core things we got to know. Atoms right. of a, a given element are identical in size, mass, and other properties. Right? Uh, and atoms of different elements differ in size, mass, and other properties. So, like, hydrogen is not oxygen, right? right? But all hydrogen atoms are like all hydrogen atoms, and all oxygen atoms are like all oxygen atoms. You will be quizzed later. You, yes. <laughs> there is a test at the end of this episode. I hope you guys have your notes out and you're ready to go. Uh, it is a fun test. I make all my test games, so it'll be nice. good. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. um, one of his postulates, atoms can't be subdivided, uh, actually was proven untrue because 
Right. We later discover atoms are made of three subatomic particles, the electron, the proton, and of course the neutron. Um, but he was true in that they can't be created or destroyed. Again, back to that law of conservation of matter. Matter can't be created or destroyed. It can only change form. And that changing form part is critical a little bit later. Right. Um, and we talked about combining. So let's talk, let's talk about those subatomic particles because they were individually discovered by different folks as well. And, you know, got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, so my man, J.J. Thompson, discovered the electron with his cathode ray experiment. I don't have to have the volume on. I just think this demo is really cool because he is basically using this negatively charged electric plate to push this beam of electrons away from it, proving the existence of charged particles in an atom. Nice. Right? I yeah. think that's really cool. So some neat stuff there. I like it. He's cool. And then Ernest Rutherford did his experiment to prove the existence of the proton. Uh, this is referred to as the gold foil experiment. So you guys can't see here, but basically he's shooting out these positively charged particles out of a reactive source and basically shooting it at this sheet. And in theory, all of the particles would bounce off, or but they're passing through, which is mm -hmm. weird. Right. Right. So some are, some are bouncing back, some are passing through. So he confirmed the existence of negative space, but also of this positively charged nucleus. The only reason it's bouncing back to us is because it's bouncing off the nucleus. So I just think that's really neat. I think that's a great visual for anyone yeah. who's missing it. That's awesome. Yeah. I love visuals. <clears throat> visuals help out. <laughs> and, and this is the thing. Atomic theory is so interesting, but it's so hard because we can't see atoms with our eyeballs. Right. If we did, that'd be super cool. The world would look a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the world would look a lot more chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So maybe thank goodness fun. we can't. <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would still be fun. Um, but then we get a deeper atomic model from Niels Bohr. And Niels Bohr is an interesting character. So he developed this model studying the way glowing hot hydrogen gives off light. So when then I, I couldn't find a video of this, sadly. Um, so I'm just going to describe it to you. So when an incandescent light bulb is lit, it gives off different wavelengths of light. So we see white light, but it's actually giving off a full spectrum of different light. And as these filaments heat up, all of the different wavelengths that come out of the light bulb is because the filament is hot. But when hydrogen gas specifically is heated to a high temperature so that it becomes incandescent like our light bulbs, something a little bit different happens. It gives off very discrete wavelengths, specifically red uh, light, which I think is really interesting. A line yeah. and just one. And that's mm. so different from our, our pretty standard light bulbs. And there might be a blue and a yellow here and there, but each one is a very specific wavelength. And so Bohr suggested that electrons have to adopt very specific energy levels in an atom rather that, than being at any possible level. Because before, 
I mean, they didn't really have a picture of where electrons could be. They knew that protons and neutrons were at the center and electrons were just kind of there. There. Yeah. They were just like, eh. But now, (laughs) it's like, hey, I'm here, guys. (laughs) But electrons. Where's the party at? (laughs) Electrons are crazy, guys. The fact that he was able to show that electrons take on discrete energy levels was so important because, I mean, electrons are the things that participate in bonding. This is how we get any substance at all. If electrons didn't allow stuff to bond, then we wouldn't exist. So, again, this goes back to the fine-tuning argument we were talking about in our very first episode. Everything is just so perfect. And we're just slowly uncovering just little baby steps at a time. Took 2,000 years to get to the first, like, really important step. And now we're just... We're going and going and going. Now we're going for it. Yeah. Yeah. So just to kind of give you a quick snapshot of all we've talked about, here's your review sheet. Go ahead and take a picture so you can use it on your (laughs) test later. (laughs) Um, But this is basically all of the different pit stops, I guess I'll say. So we started out with Democritus and John Dalton, and we slowly get this picture. Okay, we know there are positive charges. We know there are negative charges. Okay, now we have a nucleus, but we don't know where the electrons go. Okay, now we figured out where the electrons go. And then we get to quantum theory. And this is my favorite. I know. So I know that was a lot of setup just to get us here to quantum theory, but I just want you to appreciate how, how challenging it was to get where we are and all the little parts that go into where we are, because so much of it comes up again later. Um, And quantum theory is so different from any other model of the atom we've ever had. So it took until 1923 when Louis de Broglie was proposing this hypothesis to further explain atomic theory. He was basically using a series of substitutions to hypothesize that particles act like waves. Because remember, those particles that we were passing through that sheet, yeah, some of them weren't necessarily moving in like a perfectly straight line. Right. So this idea that it could be both a wave and a particle, which we call the uh, particle wave duality of light, also applies to small particles. Which it is just like, how can something be two things at the same time? Right. All right. This is our first little glimpse into quantum theory where maybe things aren't as settled as we probably thought. I love that. Right? Yeah. It kind of goes with what we've been saying all along. Like, Flexible minds and that's right. Yeah, I just cool. All right, what else? I'm ready. I like it. No, no, that was good. You're right. We, I, I, I'll address this a little bit more later. But scientists need to have flexible minds. They need to be willing to challenge what has been air quotes established. You know, <laughs> right, right. We have to be willing to ask questions and not yeah. just be content with whatever our professor tells us not to say your professor doesn't know something they might um but you got to be willing to push a little bit willing to explore and all of these great discoveries were all because someone was willing to explore exactly right so in 1926 we get schrodinger (laughs) erwin schrodinger 
used this duality of electron wave particles, like this idea that electrons could be both waves and particles at the same time, to create and solve these really challenging mathematical formulas to describe the behavior of a hydrogen atom. And this is what he came up with. Isn't that thing weird? It does look weird. I'm going to nod my head like, yeah, I know what that is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not expecting uh, many people to know what it is. I mean, I think it's pretty. It, it looks yeah, like a little flower. It is pretty. But it does, yes, it looks like a flower. It does look like a flower. So often we see, like, if you watch the Big Bang Theory or one of these science TV shows, you see this model of the atom where you have the nucleus and the electrons spinning around the nucleus. Like, you've seen that, mm -hmm. where it, it just looks like they're spinning around it. This is a more accurate picture of the atom. <laughs> I like what Freda says in yes. chat. It looks like a weird eyeball flower. I, for those who are listening, <laughs> it does, in fact, look like a weird eyeball flower. It does. I like it. <laughs> and that's because the shapes are not, are not electrons. This is the probability shape of where an electron can be at any one particular time. Okay. Gotcha. All right. And so quantum mechanics describes probabilities rather than placing them in discrete energy levels like Bohr was doing. So, this is where things get like really crazy because now we have to give electrons identifiers and these identifiers are referred to as quantum numbers. I'm not going to go into all, all of the math of the quantum numbers, but I will describe them because uh, I think they're important. There's the principal quantum number, which is just the energy level. So really low energy level, you have one really high, you can get up to like four. Uh, there's angular momentum, which is spin, and that defines the shape. So gotcha. these individual shapes come from the angular momentum quantum number. Just a no, oh, no, it's a spin. <laughs> so it's like um, how they're spinning. That's what that. Yes, yes, yeah. it's how they're spinning. Gotcha. Okay, here we go. Yeah. So these individual shapes, like some are spheres, some are like this dumbbell shape, some are that flower shape, and some are like alien spaceships i don't know uh crazy yeah yeah <laughs> but that comes from our angular momentum quantum number i know crazy stuff and then we get the magnetic spin quantum number which gives us different orientations in space so each one of those different orbitals can have different orientations so like the little dumbbell shape could be on a vertical axis it could be on a horizontal or it can be in the z plane and it, it just gets crazy from there. But all the shapes look cool. Yeah. I like I think it. They look cool. They look pretty sweet. Right. And then my favorite, and I think the easiest one to understand, is electron spin. So I, I'm going to use Oshawott for my demonstration because I have two Oshawotts. And yes, I'm a Pokemon nerd, so don't judge me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all electrons are paired up in an orbital. Okay. So. They have to, they'll have the first three quantum numbers are the same, but their spins have to be different. One will be spin up and the other one will be spin down. All right. That's how we describe it. But in reality, they're just spinning in opposite rotation. So one might be spinning this way. Does that make sense or did I lose you? Yeah. I think I lost you for just a second. Like, 
on the oh. stream, but you're, you're back. You're fine. So one okay. spinning one way and the other one is right. spinning and kudos to you for keeping them. Wee. Yeah. You know, yeah. One spins one way and the other. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'm this impressed. was so better. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, um, <laughs> so yeah, one spins one way and they can't be both spinning in the same direction because that would mean they are occupying the same space. And that can't really happen. Gotcha. So they can't, yeah, they can't occupy the same space by spinning the same way. Right. What What would happen? That's a good question. Do we know? <laughs> I don't know if we know. So this is. Because it doesn't is, happen. It, because it doesn't yeah. happen. Because right. um, matter can't occupy the same space. Uh, the same matter can't occupy the same atomical space. It, it, it basically violates the laws of physics. So whenever we see these movies where like someone travels back in time and sees themselves, they're violating the laws of physics. Oh, sorry. Oh, it did God. it one more time. <laughs> oh no. No, All you're right. back. Okay. So we're you can't go back in time. No. Right. You were just yeah, saying yeah. like going back okay. in time. Yes. If you go back in time, like in these movies where they go back in time, right. the same matter would occupy the same space. So the way they describe time travel is not physically possible because you yourself cannot occupy the same space. Dang it. I know. <laughs> now, if you go back to a time where you don't exist, I don't know. No biggie? Maybe. I mean, except that you did it. <laughs> <laughs> Except that you did it, right? But yeah. then there's the question, because matter's not created or destroyed, are your atoms just in someone else's atoms? At that, I'm not going to get into all right. that. That's, like, yeah. weirdly philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, uh, Base Babe said, so, like, how humans can't walk through humans, but ghosts can? <laughs> but what is a ghost? What is the atomic particle um, of any. a ghost? If any, right. are they the void that Democritus was talking about? Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> Do you consent to be in other people's atoms? <laughs> Do you need says. to consent to be in other people's atoms? I love it. that. Um, was good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, yeah. would, Apparently, we all said no when we signed that clause when before we got here. I guess right. So. <laughs> yeah. No. I don't consent other people to occupy my atoms. Right. Lisa, thank you. Uh, no. no. All right. So basically all of this means is that the power of the electron is quantized. You can have some positive performance value. And this is extremely important for computing. Like quantum mechanics is the reason we have computers at all. The oh. reason I'm streaming to you. Or Ooh. the reason you have that magic little devil phone that's in your pocket. <laughs> it's because quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics. Wow. Love it. It's crazy. Crazy. Um, and what's even more crazy is because of these wave-like properties, we get something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So that's this little equation here. I just think it's cool. And it basically means... 
that you can't know the velocity and position of an electron at the same time. You can either know how fast it's going or you can know where it is, but you can't know both. Hmm. Gotcha. Which is really frustrating. That's, yeah. If you're trying to do modeling. <laughs> right. 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 And that just, I think yeah. that tells you a lot about how quantum mechanics is more like quantum statistics because so much is just like iffy and weird like that where, where we just can't know it all at the same time. Right. That's so super frustrating <laughs> and leaves a lot up to, does it leave a lot to speculation? You know what I'm saying? Or can it you still have a good idea even though you can't do both? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, that's what's nice about quantum mechanics is we have really, really good probabilities. So all we can do is predict, but we can't know for sure. <laughs> gotcha. Sorry, the chat is distracting me. Wartime oh. propaganda said, did I hear Heisenberg is just finally breaking bad? No, <laughs> no, no, and no. That's how rumors start. That is how, if I get another student who asks me, you know how to make myth. That's none of your business. First of all. <laughs> That's the best answer. None of your business. And I wouldn't tell you even if I did. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so why does all of this matter? I mean, we're matter, you're matter, we're all made of matter, so that's kind of why it matters, because matter. <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> but atomic theory establishes that all matter is made of these tiny particles. I mean, it's a discovery that has led to really amazing scientific breakthroughs in areas from like modern chemistry to nuclear energy. I mean, like, just look around you. Everything you see, hear, touch, taste, smell, it, everything in your own body is made of atoms. Everything we do is done by atoms. And I don't know. I just think it's really cool because I think it allows us to understand ourselves a little bit better. The thought processes that went into designing us a little bit better. I just sit back and think of like how creative God is. Yeah. Cause like who would think to do all this? Not me. Yeah. It just shows his infinite wisdom and how um, foolish we are to think to even try and put him in a box. I think <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, who do you think you are? <laughs> and what's so crazy to me is sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, scientists will get to this level where they think that they're better than everybody else or like better than God even because yeah. they finally understand just a scintilla of what goes into <sighs> making us. Right. Like, first of all, how dare you? Right. <laughs> Who do you think you, you are? Know. Yeah. A little humility, people. Just a smidge. Just a smidge. But no. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. it's By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So, that it is seen. So, that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. So, that's Hebrews 11.3. And, I mean, we think of the spiritual world when we think of that. And that's true. But I also think of this physical world because there's so many things in the physical world 
we can't see that are essential for our makeup. Um, and we've talked so many in these past episodes about how chemicals are like this secret language of God. And it's taken mm-hmm. us thousands of years to just scratch the surface of that code. I mean, we find in our own DNA that the molecules spell out so clearly God eternal within the body. Um, if you don't remember that, but definitely go back to our first episode. Yes. Still gives me goosebumps. Like it literally still gives me goosebumps, that one. Big yeah. time. Yeah. Same. Same. And thank God we don't have to understand it to survive. You know what I mean? It just is. Yeah. And so it just says it's such a blessing to be able to understand it, but thank God we don't have to, or we, you know, I wouldn't be here. No, <laughs> no you're right. I, th- I do thank God we don't have to understand it, but it's like, I don't know. It's like reading a book. You get to see the story unfold before your eyes and you're putting this puzzle together and just trying to understand the story of how God made us, what were his thoughts going into it? Like just all of these creative little pieces to give insight into that. And I know we'll never truly understand it, um, but I just think it's interesting and I feel closer to God when I'm trying to explore into these things. Yeah, it's humbling and it's um, very humbling. It's you just appreciate also. It's not just like, oh, I needed that so I could have faith. It's just, no, oh, uh, I appreciate so much more what God's done for me on so many levels. So, so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. So, I just want to remind everyone who is listening to this today and who listens to this podcast in the future. Um, and they're probably like, why is this woman going on and on about atomic theory? I don't care who Democritus was. Like, leave it alone. Uh, but God made you in your life, He made it out of these invisible, tiny things called atoms. Could we not understand ourselves just a little bit better if we start to understand what we're made of? Could we not appreciate this massively creative God who thought to make us out of something so small and so complex that we require all of these crazy calculuses just to scratch the surface? Right. We still don't have all the answers. Like you said, we're scratching the surface and it's incredible what we found just in this so just in this and we're not even done yet guys (laughs) we're Um, just scratching the surface too (laughs) that's right um because now we're just going to talk both science and philosophy and what it means to be local and what it means to be real but you know what is super real and super delicious north arrow coffee (laughs) north arrow coffee is delicious coffee five-star microwavable and pro-life donates 15% of all their proceeds to pro-life charities. It is single origin and roast to order. So treat yourself to some delicious coffee and save some babies by using code Hawkhound to get 10% off your order. I definitely forgot to throw our little tag up there. Yeah. Use code Hawkhound. <laughs> delicious. Delicious. Um, we are going to start getting ready to head on over to just rumble and odyssey folks. So if you are on YouTube, Get out of there. What are you doing there? Don't you know where the party's at? Yeah, the party is definitely over on Rumble and Odyssey. So get get on over there. Dropping the links in the chat. 
Um, but yeah, we always like to say don't work for woke companies that hate you or your values, and we won't, which is why we're taking the show over to Rumble and Odyssey. Audio listeners, of course, please don't go anywhere. You will still get the majority of this episode, but our goal at Hawkhound is to make sure that we aren't making little compromises to grow our podcast. So join us over on Rumble and Odyssey so we can speak more freely. Any last thoughts? I'm excited for more. I'm ready. Let's- Bring it on. Let's do it. Yay. Whoop, whoop. Party time. Yay. All right. So. I know you guys are here to talk about what you really wanted to talk about, which is locality and reality. So let's jump right in. All right. Let's do it. First, I want to define locality. So in physics, the principle of locality states that an object is influenced directly only by its immediate surroundings. So, for example, if I was in the room with you, I could push you on one side. But because I'm, like, on the other side of the computer screen, (laughs) it doesn't matter how much I want to push you. I cannot because we're not in the same environment. I'll remember to stay on the other side of the screen. (laughs) I'm just going to run over there and just push Elise. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) See you. Uh, So uh, a theory that includes the principle of locality is said to be local theory. So this is an alternative concept of instantaneous or non-local action of it at a distance. So locality evolved out of the field of classical physics. This is basically Isaac Newton's physics. The idea that there is a cause at one point and, a, and an effect at another point, cause and effect. Something in, interacts in the space between those two points. So like I said, if I was to push you from here, I might text someone close to you to get them to push you for me. Right, that's there you go. non-locality, acting at a distance. <laughs> or if we're thinking about particles, there has to be some sort of force interacting between those particles that allows them to respond to one another. Um, so to an, exert an influence, something like a wave or a particle must travel through space between two points to carry that influence. So we know that there are some phenomenon that subvert locality, like gravity, electrical forces, magnetism, right? The earth is not, well, when, when my feet aren't on the ground, the earth is not touching me, but <laughs> I still feel the forces of gravity. If I jumped out of a plane, I would definitely feel <laughs> the forces of gravity. You'd know it was, it was there. <laughs> you would know it was there. <laughs> <For> sure. <laughs> And no, I'm not volunteering to jump out of a plane. Right. <laughs> there, there is not a super chat in the world that would get me oh, to jump out so of a plane. Oh, it's so fun. It's fun I, when you have a parachute. Let me make that perfectly clear. But you so, jumped out of a plane? Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm I so glad to tell the tale. Here. You live <laughs> to tell the tale. <laughs> but that makes sense. Like you're not touching, right. the, touching the earth, but it's right. still, gravity is still pulling you. Right. Um, so to explain these phenomena that seem to act at a distance, our favorite scientist, Albert Einstein, postulated mm-hmm. the special theory of relativity, which states that no material or energy can travel faster than the speed of light. This was big news for everybody. Um, 
because I mean, we take it for granted now how much Einstein did for us. It's like, oh, well, duh. But there was a time (laughs) when people didn't know that. Right. When that was mind blowing. Yes, absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. Thanks, Einstein. Thanks, Einstein. (laughs) Uh, I love what Rena Rob says in the chat. Cop says, do you know how fast you are going? No, but I know where I am. Next time you get pulled over. That's how you talk yourself out of a ticket. (laughs) Perfect. All right. So let's talk about uh, some of Einstein's principles. Um, I do want to point a few things about what was going on around Einstein at the time he made his claims, because while we love him now, people didn't love him then. Have you noticed that people don't (laughs) like scientists who challenge the status quo? (laughs) It's like, that sounds so familiar. Hmm. <laughs> it sounds so familiar. Yeah. Oh. Same uh, old so story. He, same old story. Einstein was challenging big old Sir Isaac Newton, who established the original theory of relativity and had discovered gravity. Like, how dare you, sir? How dare you challenge Isaac Newton coming around here? Who do you think you here? are? Who do you think you are? You don't even know. Yep. <laughs> um. So because he was saying things that people didn't like they of course attacked him and what's crazy it's not crazy because we know this is what people do they didn't go after the validity of his claims but they went after him personally Mm. like you do like you do because at the time he was just a patent clerk people said he wasn't smart enough um oh and the one i they said it's because he was jewish and it was Uh, some pokey science oh i hate that anti-semitic of course, yeah. What? <laughs> but that yeah. just shows you what he was dealing with um, right. while he was trying to revolutionize science. I mean, if if we didn't have what he figured out, we wouldn't have computers. We right. wouldn't have a lot of things. Right. And I want to say, we always talk about how scientists um, need to have flexible minds, but also the to be so brave and so bold to question these things. Like, yes, I do know what I'm talking about. I can, um, I can go against what Isaac Newton says because, you know, he was, he was gutsy enough to do it. So that too is also a huge benefit or something that you need. (laughs) I think when you're doing these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a twofolded difficult thing. On the one hand, we need the gutsy scientists like Einstein. We need the ones who are willing to stand up to the ones who are willing to say no, the ones who are willing to actually do real science and not just go along to get along and push back. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other hand, we need these people who are caught up in their comfort zone to stop being freaking NPCs. (laughs) I mean, I I worked in science for a long time before I was a teacher. uh, And I I just saw this everywhere. Why is it that when someone in the scientific community sees something that is wrong and maybe partially untrue or even wholly untrue, that they are ridiculed and mocked and made to lose their livelihoods and forced out of science altogether? Like what goes into a person's mind that they feel like they have to act that way? Well, I guess when you're threatened <laughs> or challenged. And again, a lot of your ego is caught up in this. So it's, it seems a lot more personal, I think, also yeah. when, uh, when you get to be challenged like that, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I, I think that's it. It's definitely a comfort thing. Yeah. Um, this is especially true for like professors and teachers, not just like at that high school level, but definitely college professor professors. It's so incredibly hard to encourage people in these fields to stretch their minds to consider that what they might have been teaching may have been wrong this whole time. And right. There's probably a little bit of guilt in that. Like, I would feel bad if I said something wrong on this podcast and gave anybody a false impression. Uh, so just so you guys know, like, call me out on it. I will definitely own up to it. Like, I'm I'm not afraid to own up to my mistakes, unlike some <laughs> scientists out there. Like, <laughs> I'm willing to make a correction. We're practicing um, what we preach. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like I wouldn't double down on the thing that is wrong and keep teaching it, you know. <clears throat> and so I, I don't understand. And I guess part of it is, like you said, it's pride. Um, yeah. Sadly, so often scientists lose sight of the reason they went into science in the first place and started being invested in it because it makes them feel better than everybody else. And I just it's absolutely ridiculous because an astrophysicist is no better than a plumber because an astrophysicist can't fix the house I live in every single day. <laughs> like, come on. You're not that high and mighty. You're really not. Just because yeah. you can do some really cool math doesn't yeah. make you better than everybody else. It does give you some really cool insight into yeah. the creation around us. Might give you some really cool tools to help make new stuff that we could use. But it certainly doesn't make you better than anybody else. Or infallible. Or infallible, for goodness sakes. Yeah. And I think ultimately it comes down to that fear of yeah. being wrong, of having yeah. to reevaluate what you thought you knew. Like there's this fear of change in your worldview being shaken up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And not to go off on a total huge tangent. Know, sorry. Here that was no, a total me, no, me too. Because it was, it's like, and even with our faith that too, like I've been asked questions about my faith where I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you, but I'm going to find out and I'll come back with an answer. Or if I'm completely wrong, I'll come back with that too. Like you said earlier, yeah. but it's, 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 um, it's good to be challenged. And it's also good to recognize when you're challenged and be like, I don't know, but I'm going to find yeah. out. I'll figure it out. Absolutely. absolutely. Or I won't and I'll admit to that too. <laughs> but I didn't know if y'all knew this. It's okay to not know everything. Right. Like, It'll be fine. It really will be okay. Yeah. It's okay to learn and like try new things. And it's okay to be wrong. I don't know. I'll get off my soapbox. Let's let's talk about physics. <laughs> All right. We'll get so, back to it. Yeah. Einstein uh, basically sought to reformulate physics in a way that obeyed the principle of locality. So remember, locality is like you have to physically interact with it. And he wanted a way to explain gravity so it obeyed locality, right? Because gravity is not touching you and nothing can move faster than the speed of light. So how, how is gravity interacting with you? Newton basically assumed that gravity is felt everywhere in the universe at the same moment. Mm. Basically that gravity could travel at an infinite speed. Um, so like, let's say the sun just suddenly vanished. If the sun was suddenly gone, then the earth would immediately notice that lack of gravitational pull and just like get launched out into space. Like bye. <laughs> um, but that's not how it works. Right. Because what nothing can move faster than the speed of light. That's what Einstein 
showed us. And so he postulated that mass is equally as important as energy. And that's where we get the classic equation equals MC squared. There it is. There it is. You knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. Where E is energy, M is mass, and C is the speed of light, which is 3.0 times 10 to the eighth meters per second. When you're in science, these are things you have to know. <laughs> Again, for the quiz, write that down. Write that down. <laughs> speed of light. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we get to gravity, right? This is what is so interesting because he basically postulated that space and time is a type of matter because matter is also energy. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Einstein postulated that gravity causes this curvature in space itself. So we previously think of space as being like this straight line and the straight, uh, the shortest path to any place is a straight line. Between the two points. But in the presence of mass and energy, space somehow becomes curved. Which is a little different. Yeah. 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 And so this, go ahead. No, no. I want to let you, I'll let you get there because I think I know where you're going with this, but I'm like, get there. I think so. All right. So the curved geometry of space time is what made Einstein's discovery so revolutionary because, like I said, we all thought of time and space as being fixed. That's Mm -hmm. Newtonian logic. So this also meant that gravity was this mysterious force that could act on an object at a distance without touching it. Um, And like we said, that defies the principles of locality. So instead, he proposed that gravity is a force that arises from the interaction of space and massive objects. And he gave us this crazy image right here. Nice. Right? Yeah. Which is mind-bending. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so crazy to think of time and space like this. So think of it like this. Time and space is touching all of the planets and all of the masses in the same way you may touch or bend a trampoline. Okay, so like if I step down on a trampoline and someone is sitting on the end, they'll start to lean towards me. Just as some of the masses are bending towards the curvature of space-time, space-time is giving them the forces of gravity to interact. Now, that's kind of like a 2D way of looking at it, but here's how it works in three dimensions. Ooh. That's freaky, right? But you see how, how it like compresses, just like that trampoline idea right? As you get closer to that curvature, it's all leaning in, it's curving and bending towards it. So, and I like the trampoline that makes, makes good sense. It's a good analogy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know that's a lot of words to say from Einstein's view. Gravity is local and it's not acting at a distance. Ta-da! So gravity is not actually disobeying the law of locality. Um, And while it's good at explaining locality, it's not great at explaining what's real. And so then the question is, is like, what does real mean? So what do you, when, when you think of the word real, what do you think real means? I guess what comes to mind first is just things that are tangible. Right. You know, like I can use my senses to, yeah, touch or see or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I like Initially. Initially. Um, so to be real. 
Well, that's how I felt too. So to be real in physics means you have to have a definite set of properties. Basically, like I'm real because I have brown hair and the only way I could have blonde hair is if I changed it. Uh, and it, I'm not real because I have brown hair, but because that hair has properties, right? I have properties, you have properties, mm-hmm. and particles all have properties. Like we talked about the four quantum numbers. They all have energy. They all have momentum. They all have that spin, like when I was spinning the Oshawats, right? Um, but quantum mechanics and the quantum model of the atom, remember, deals with probabilities and not specifics. And this is where we get to everybody's favorite thought experiment, Schrodinger's cat. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Everybody's Yay. been waiting for it. Yeah. Okay. So for those of you who don't know how the thought experiment goes, <coughs> a cat, a flask of poison, and a radioactive source are all placed in a sealed box. Sealed box, kind of like this one. Okay. Um, there's an internal monitor, basically a Geiger counter, that detects radioactivity of a single atom decaying. Uh, and if the flask is shattered, it releases a poison which kills the cat. So the Copenhagen interpretation implies that after a while, the cat is simultaneous alive and dead, right? Because you can't know for a fact if the cat is alive or dead. Now, this is a, I really like this toy. This was given to me after I won um, the prize in like physical chemistry when I was in college. So it's very old. And when I, I was like, I'm going to use this prop on my show. I'm so excited. <laughs> uh, it wasn't working. So I was like, okay, that's weird. I opened it up and the batteries had exploded. Inside it. So um, I decided to do some real life chemistry to try and save it. So here's just kind of a little preview. <laughs> so you guys can go on this emotionally traumatic saga with me. <laughs> um, so this is what it looked like when I first opened it. And the reason you see like all of this bubbling going on, let me just tell you what's in a battery. We call it battery acid. It's not an acid. It's an alkaline substance called potassium hydroxide. It's basically a base. And so after, after the battery had exploded, it left potassium carbonate all over the terminals. Like it was a mess. It was gross. Um, but if you put vinegar on it, you basically cause a neutralization reaction with the potassium carbonate. So it's bubbling because it's making carbon dioxide, water, uh, and leftover potassium salt. So I basically just took this toothbrush with some vinegar on it and scrubbed it for like an hour. And you can see all the bubbles forming from the chemical reaction. It was fun. It was fun. For um, an hour. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, I'd scrub it for a little bit, see if some of the solid settled out. Then I had to yeah. let it dry. So, and it's so tiny and some of it was stuck. Like it was bad. Oh. Note to self, if you have an old toy you care about, don't let it sit around for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it. And if you do call Jess, she'll walk you through it. Right. Yeah. yeah do some, do some chemistry. Um, <laughs> exactly. So this is how it works. It's basically like a magic eight ball and the cat can be either alive or dead until it's not until you actually look at it. So it is, in something called quantum superposition, where it can be one of those things or both at the same time until it is actually observed. And so this is the age-old question. If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it actually make a sound? No one's observing it. Does it? Does something exist if we observe it or not? That's a good question. 
That's the question. That is a good question. (laughs) It's Mm. it's a crazy question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, man, I'm always like, yeah, but you're right. You don't observe it. You're not hearing the, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the big question of quantum mechanics. Does something exist? whether or not it's being observed is does it still have its properties whether or not it's being observed so this is a thought experiment proposed by einstein boris podlovsky and nathan rosen to make our lives easier i'm just call gonna call them epr this is called the <laughs> epr paradox right because it's too much to say all those names <laughs> <laughs> and they basically argue that de- the description of physical reality provided by quantum mechanics is incomplete. They uh, they just couldn't get on board with the idea that something couldn't be real if you weren't looking at it. Like, just because yeah. I'm not looking at the cat doesn't mean that the cat's not real, right? As soon as I open the box, I know for sure. But while it's closed, it still has some properties. That That's what they were trying to say. Right. Um, I guess, and this is a weird way to think about it, but I, my connection here is like kind of morally, like if you do something bad, but nobody sees you, was it really all that bad? (laughs) I don't know. You know, I know that's two totally different planes of, of thought, but still it's kind of like, is it still wrong if nobody saw you and nobody was hurt because you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Does it apply I, to both? I, I think that's a great way to put it because, yeah, it's like it basically asks the question, like, if something's not real when you're not observing it, is anything real at all unless you're looking directly at it? Like, right. I'm not looking at the bookshelves behind me. Are they still there? Right? So it's like. Are they only there for me and the people watching you and not for you? Ooh. Ooh. I can't see myself. Am I actually here? Oh, this is getting crazy. Oh, yeah, you can just take this in so many. Right. So many weird. <laughs> so yeah. Reno Rob 60 said, so you're saying God heard the tree fall, so it made a sound. He, you're getting ahead of me, Reno Rob. Oh. Calm down. Calm down, chat. <laughs> a plus for you. You get a extra plus. credit on the test. <laughs> yep. <laughs> No, that was good. Um, Mm -hmm. So basically, the EPR folks believed in determinism, the idea that all of physics is unchangeable, and at its root, it is governed by cause and effect relationships. They're basically saying if you can calculate the variables for one system, in theory, you can calculate the variables for any system in existence. Uh, And remember, we talked about an electron can only occupy the one point in space after being pushed to that point in space. You can't have two things occupying the same point. Right? Uh, Right. Which kind of brings this iffy question. Like, the cat can't be both alive and dead at the same time. Right? Right. Whether or not you observe it, you just have to observe it and know for yourself. Or the tree in the forest does make a sound regardless of whether or not someone is around to hear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wartime propaganda yeah. says boo determinism. <laughs> I'm slow down. I'm getting there. Chat is so on it. <laughs> I know. They're I, on top of this. They are. So remember, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, the core tenet was that uh, about position and velocity. You can't know both at the same time. Basically, 
everything is not a direct cause and effect relationship, but a pure mathematical probability. So essentially to quantum mechanics, nothing is real. It's not defined concretely without the presence of an observer. And because it's based on probability without an observer, the electron in theory is in all possible points at the same time. So Mm. I can predict that the electron is here or here. So in theory, it's in both places at the same time. I just have to look at it to know which one. Um, The way I think of it is kind of like, you know how video game backgrounds slowly rendered, like especially the old ones. Right. Like it's not there until you get close enough to see it. Yeah. Get close enough for it to render into frame. Yep. (laughs) But if we're thinking deterministically, it's still there, right? Because the programmers put it there. You just haven't gotten there close enough to see it. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So, so we've got this real back and forth between the EPR paradox guys and the quantum mechanics guys. And in fact, (laughs) I love, I love this quote from Einstein. He's just being a little bit cheeky and wrote a letter to Niels Bohr and said, God simply doesn't play dice. I mean, I just love that. Nice. I like that one too. Yeah. I've heard that. I never knew what it, what it was in context to. So. Hmm. Now you know. Now I know. The more you know. The more you know. Um, So that brings us to quantum entanglement. So (laughs) Einstein called quantum entanglement spooky action at a distance, which I think (laughs) is really funny. Because it does feel that way. Um, So let's consider electrons because electrons, you know, I like them. And I think they're yeah. really good for this example. Uh, and we talked about them coming in pairs, like the two Oshawats, right? And they have, if they're in the same orbital, they have to have opposite spins. One spins one way, the other spins the opposite way. You can't have both. We call that spin up and spin down. Uh, and that's true no matter how far apart the electrons are, uh, what, or even how far apart the Oshawats are. One could hmm. be here and one, one could be at your house and they both spin opposite ways no matter what. Uh, And that basically means, like, if I know my Oshawott is spinning one way, by definition, yours must be spinning the other way. Right. Does that So even though you're not observing it. Right. It's still the, yeah, okay. But does that mean that information just traveled faster than light? Oh, boom. What the heck, right? Because (laughs) I knew that before I saw it. Oh, that's a good one. It's a good question, yes, right? Yes, it is a good question. Um, so, yeah. Th- but this also breaks the law of locality, right? The idea that anything can travel faster than light because this would assume that the information would travel faster than light. Right. Um, and so the EPR group basically thought there must be some sort of hidden variable there to cause this phenomenon to happen. There must be something we haven't discovered yet to explain quantum entanglement without losing reality and locality and breaking down physics. Like there has to be something going on there. (sighs) Well, and this is where we get to the claim of the Nobel Prize winners. Uh, And before I talk about them, I want to talk about John Bell. So this is John Bell. Looks like your classic professor doing some mathy physics up at the board mm-hmm. they all look the same <laughs> yeah, right 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 um but he's cool because he well 
He went on sabbatical from doing some work at CERN to do some theoretical work of his own. Can't imagine why he needed a break from CERN. Mm. <laughs> hmm. We might do an episode on that. Yeah, we, <laughs> we might have to. Mm-hmm. We might have to. Um, but to understand his theory, we need to understand a property of light called polarization. Um, and you might have heard the term polarization before when referring to your sunglasses because they reflect polarized light. Uh, and light particles, remember, just like electrons, travel both like a particle and a wave. They can either move vertically or horizontally, right? So, and, and all the angles in between, right? So right. it can move in all directions. And if I wanted to know which way my light was moving in, I would pass it through a polarizer like sunglasses. I would either let through vertical light or horizontal, or vertical, horizontal, one of those, um, and let, let it be detected by a detector to figure out, okay, this is what type of light I'm picking up. So if you were to place both a vertical and a horizontal polarizer in sequence, you wouldn't see any light at all. So one way to kind of visualize this, I've got some polarizers for us to look at. So here, like they're both in the same direction, and then he's going to turn it, and now it's blocking out all light altogether. Yep. Nice. Right. So now both the vertical and horizontal light is being totally blocked. What's weird is that if you place a third polarizer between these two, you start to see more light. Like, watch this. Hmm. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. It's so weird. You'd think it would just get or stay dark. (laughs) Yeah, you would think it would just stay dark. Why is it that you get to see more light? And this is because fundamentally by measuring the properties of the particle you're changing its state which is weird so the way i like to think of it is that third middle polarizer was not vertical it was kind of like at an angle yeah yep so instead of blocking out certain types of light it it just rotated the light so it allowed small amounts of light to slip through the last polarizer where it normally wouldn't be able to so gotcha. we would see more light than we would normally be able to. That's so trippy. I love it. it it's really trippy. Yeah, it, it's cool. Yeah. Um, and so that brings us to the CHSH inequality because John Bell developed this whole mathematical thing. We're not going to do math tonight. It's okay. <laughs> Put your calculators away. That basically states that if there are these hidden variables that Einstein and his friends proposed, the correlation between the results of a large number of measurements will never exceed a certain value. However, quantum mechanics predicts that a certain type of experiment should violate Bell's inequality, right? Thus resulting in more correlation than we would think possible. So uh, I'm going to show you guys this picture. So this is kind of the theory we've got going on here. So we have two entangled protons that are set in opposite directions. And so this is where... Elise, if you have your piece of paper. Oh, I do. We're going to do a little demo for you guys. <laughs> so mm-hmm. pretend these are our polarizers. So let's say we both hold them vertical, right? 
Think about those entangled Oshawats again, right? Those two electrons, they have opposite spins. They're moving in opposite directions. If we both hold them in the same direction, one of us will either always see light and the other will always not see light. Does that make sense? Because one is always going to be vertical light and the other will always be horizontal light. Gotcha. Right? So if we're aligned like this, one will always either see light and the other will not. However, if I misalign, then we will both always see light or both never see light. Nice. That makes sense. It does make sense. Okay. And this is the theory that they basically came up with to suggest, okay, if these particles are truly entangled, you will get a random sort of agreement rather than perfect agreement. And so they had this sort of setup where instead of me and Elise, it was Alice and Bob. And it was, it was just a philosophical experiment at the time. Cause they, I mean, how do you set that up? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. How do you even start to question this is my, but anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But keep going. No, you're good. Uh, so in 1972, Stuart Friedman and John Klosser built the first experimental setup to test this. And this is what it looked like. I was like, what? They actually did it. They built it. Wow. And, guys, it exactly matches the prediction quantum here. This classical mechanics tells us we should see perfect uh, alignment. But quantum mechanics basically suggests it's more random, right? We would get more correlation right. and less correlation in certain spots. Basically, they disproved Einstein's hidden variable. Hmm. Which suggested there is this spooky action at a distance happening. And we just don't really understand it yet. Gotcha. So it didn't, it didn't, it didn't kind of answer questions, right? Right. Like, yeah. Right. Hmm. Basically, this is a very strong evidence in favor of quantum entanglement to show that, yeah, it's true that if we separate these particles light years away or however far away, they will be exactly opposite. It basically means that information in that setting kind of is traveling faster than the speed of light, which is crazy. Um, and if not probable that the universe may not be locally real. Oh. So there, there are some loopholes here. Uh, after Klosser's experiment, the question was, did the source and the static polarizer in the lab have an impact on the information carried by the photon and its generator? Basically, was the, was the actual source influencing the final outcome? And mm -hmm. this is where Elaine Aspect comes in. He's also one of the Nobel Prize winners. Um, and the trick was he used this quartz trans transducer, the... Uh, and hooked it up to basically this random number generator. So the transducer would randomly vibrate and pass these entangled photons through random polarizers to maximize the randomness. So mm. the, the polarizer or the source itself was no longer having influence on the direction of the light. 
the light was randomly generated and then released back to Alice and Bob or you and I. Right. Right. And there was still that strong correlation, even with all of that randomization. Right. Right. It didn't, it didn't totally turn it on its head. Right. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And then there's some scientists who were just like, I can't get with it. This doesn't solve the problem. Um, Right. Because I'm sure you can guess some people suggested that Elaine Aspect just added another layer of complexity to the problem. Sure, maybe the source is not, is random now, but what about the number generator? Is it truly random? (laughs) Is the number generator having an influence on it? Right. Like, to me, it feels like people were reaching, um, they wanted these hidden variables to be true. And it comes from this idea of super determinism, uh, which postulates that all systems being measured are correlated with the choices of which measurements make on them. Basically they were like low key Calvinists. I feel like Calvin science Calvinists. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I've heard that before too. (laughs) (laughs) You're predestined to collect this measurement. There is no random. It's already. (laughs) Right. It's already all correlated and predetermined. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Base babe variables be like, yep, disappearing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So th- then there's the problem with the local wave function or the non-local infor- information that is all around us and other particles. So it is possible that closer and aspect ruled out locality but not the possibility of hidden variables. And this is still kind of a problem because a violation of locality would have to mean that information is traveling faster than the speed of light. And no one is actually suggesting that. So they needed to have an explanation for that sort of logic jump. And this is where Anton uh, Zeglier came in. He's most famous for demonstrating the possibility of quantum teleportation, um, which I don't even fully understand is so crazy. Yeah. Um, but it basically means you can move from one quantum state to uh, f- for one particle to another uh, via this intermediate particle that is entangled with both of them. It's, it's like super crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they basically did all of this crazy work. Uh, and were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for each having conducted groundbreaking experiments to show that entangled quantum states exist. Wow. And basically proving that the universe is not locally real. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hold on a second. I just got to kind of <laughs> get, my, get my mind all back together here. I know. I know that was a lot of information, guys. Um, no, just super awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. So like Um, an overall, and probably you might be getting to that. So just like an overall picture of it. So uh, I can't even summarize it because I'm just like, it's a lot basically because two particles are entangled. It doesn't matter how far apart they are. We can know information about them after they are observed and they they can change they can essentially change their mind so like let's say i put two 
uh, two balls in a box. One is blue and one is red. Um, and I ship one of those to you and I don't know which is which and you don't mm-hmm. know which is which. As soon as you open your box and you see that your box has a red ball in it, you know immediately that mine has a blue ball in it, right? Or vice versa. Right, right. But for particles, it we don't believe that you can know what color is which before they're sent. Basically, the idea is, is the wave function settles down only after it is observed. You can only know information about it by observing. Before that, it occupies all spaces and all times. Basically, it doesn't have definite properties. Remember, reality means you have definite properties. The ball is definitely red. The ball is definitely blue. But before you open it, it is both red and blue at the same time. Yep. Yep. It could, it is both. It is both. Right. Yes. It's, wow. (laughs) And so in that weird philosophical way, at least at the quantum level for, and this is specifically for quantumly entangled particles. I'm not suggesting that if I had a, a a red and a blue ball and you had a separate red and blue ball, like if you sent me one uh, and I sent you one, suddenly these two are entangled. Like that's not how it works. Right. These are specifically things that are linked to one another that are quantumly entangled at creation. Um, so things that are unrelated don't behave this way. Right. And I They're set up you, from the beginning to be to be together, kind of. That's a, right. That's yeah. right. Think, yeah. Thinking about those pair of Oshawats or the pair of electrons. Yeah. Right. It's only these things that are quantumly entangled that can convey this information very fast. Um, and Isaac News, Newton basically suggested that if the universe is real and if you can know the position and philosophy velocities the um of all the ingredients of our world you can identify the forces that influence them and that physics could be used to know anything and i think this is the point god didn't intend for us to know everything and anything at the same time right so is it really surprising that it's a little bit more complicated (laughs) than maybe we originally assumed right 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 the more you dig into it the more you're just like what is that i I kind of imagine, um, like the Gordian knot. Have you ever heard that? Like it's this a knot that you just can't untangle, kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Or, or if you've ever knit or crocheted and you have a big ball of yarn that's been a huge you can mess, never untangle. No, you start getting into it, and you just find more and more. And worse. Yeah, exactly. So it reminds me of that. Like the more you dig into it to try to untangle this ball of yarn, you're just like, Oh my gosh, there's more and more knots to find. It's never going to end. Never. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I like that analogy because that's, that's basically what we're looking at is that this idea that information can travel because you know something about the opposite particle. Right. Right. That somehow these two particles are linked and information could be transmitted between them. Um, because you could just as easily know something different about the particle and then instantaneously the, the, the opposite particle has to adopt new properties. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's just crazy that this, this is what's happening around us. And if it had been, like they stumbled upon it and it was experimented one time and it was not reproducible, right. then you would expect, okay, you know, maybe it was just a mistake or something like that. It's highly reproducible. Nice. 
Yeah, because nice. this was all discovered in the 70s. I don't know why it took until last year for them to get the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a slow process. I guess there's like a line of people. It's like mm. they got so behind because they were waiting for people to die to give them their <laughs> prizes. Or that's how it felt. Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Um, uh, I lost what I was going to say. Sorry. It's gone. It's okay. Um, so there's, of course, there's always new theories coming out. Uh, one new theory I'm not going to go into detail about because I, I just didn't have enough time to really dig into it. Maybe if you guys are interested, uh, we could do a separate episode about it. It's called emergence theory. And it's the idea that reality is actually made up of information. Um, mm. What is information? I mean, information is Meaning conveyed via symbols, like languages and codes are all groups and symbols that convey meaning. And the various possible arrangement of those symbols are all governed by rules. Um, so the language user makes free will choices regarding how to arrange the symbols in order to produce meaning according to those rules. So the basically, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we're in the matrix. Got it. I knew it. Basically, you did know it. <laughs> knew it. Just she got kidding. to the point already. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basically, there's the idea of the chooser instead of the observer. Yeah. You're choosing how information travels. So, um, would that also kind of explain? Because I know this is a huge like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's a huge thing that it is a huge thing. thing. Manifesting when people talk about like yes. manifesting, yeah, I'm gonna will of, it into existence. E yes, exactly. It's a very big trend. Ha! Ah, there's Got the word. Trend. Got it. <laughs> Got it. Anyway, yep. Is it kind of in that vein also? Yeah, you know, within that trend. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny to me how science really bridges this gap of like concrete science, of course, and like philosophy. I mean, yeah. yes. so many of the initial <laughs> questions were proposed by philosophers. Yes. Yes. You think, I think you have to be a bit of both. I would yeah. think you'd have to be a bit of both to even have a mind that can question, come up with the questions to these things or to keep going because it's right. also, um, it is it is philosophy until you start proving it, I guess. Right. Yeah. Anyway, you kind of yeah. have to have that type of mindset. Which, which is, is why I love our show, because we're not afraid to talk about our faith and science and history and archaeology, like all of the things. Yeah. And so many people have just lost that. And I feel like that's why science has become less interesting recently yeah. is because People are just like letting it go. Well, I think there's also a huge movement to of like trust the science, don't question it. Oh my gosh. It's I know. and also to take out any form of mythology, as they like yeah. to say, or to take out anything that could remotely resemble um religion or the Bible actually helping you to understand right. <laughs> these things. And I think that that's something, unfortunately, that the world's kind of moving into is we're moving away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're so um, all-knowing and powerful ourselves. We don't, we don't need that. 
Which is so crazy to me because we see how complicated it's gotten within the last hundred years. Who are we to think that there's not more to learn, that there's not more to discover? It's just crazy. Yeah. Um, Wartime propaganda. You're saying the Greeks believed you had to have a foundation in all these things. They didn't separate hard science from philosophy. And I think they were onto something with that. I think you have to be. I think that that is how you have to move forward to move forward. You have to have all of that. Yeah, absolutely. They were onto something for sure. They were, which is why I want to, I want to, because so much of what we've talked about with quantum mechanics left a lot to slation. And if it's true that if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it and, and it doesn't make a sound. If it's true that particles have certain probabilities of speed, velocity, position, but we can't truly know anything and they don't have properties at all. Or, I mean, they, they have properties, but before being observed, they don't have anything. And only after being observed, the wave function collapses. Does that not make reality subjective? Yes. <laughs> Yes, and what does that mean for for life, for people? What does that right. mean? And you take that on a philosophical level. What does that mean for everybody? Right. There is no real, there is no truth. Everything <laughs> nothing is, is real. Nothing is real. Nothing. <laughs> okay. And so it's like we were talking about. Science is leaving out the factor that it simply can't account for. This is the hidden variable that Einstein missed all along. The variable that holds all our bodies together, not just on a cellular level, but on an atomic level. And that is God. I mean, think about it. Yes. (laughs) The author of the law of physics, the one who set the stars in motion is the observer. Oh, who called it like half an hour ago? I know. (laughs) I think it was Rena Rob. He knew where I was going with this. Boom. (laughs) Boom. We have the great observer. He's the great observer. Yep. Yep. Oh, I love that. So it is all observed. It is because God is observing it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It works because he's outside of space and time. I mean, when you get down to it, you have to find the unmoved mover, and that is God. Yeah. And how, um, I think it, I don't know if scary is the right word, but how it shakes your foundation if you keep asking these questions and there is no unmovable, Yeah, you know, um, when does it end? Where does it stop? And you could just keep your wheels spinning forever and ever. And I think that that's also very sad, depressing aspect or a way to look at life. You know what I mean? Just it is. There, nothing is real. Nothing. What does it matter? <laughs> Which is why we can't live like that. Um, yes. PJ from Conspiracy Pilled some, said something really important this week that there's really no such thing as atheists anymore. Yeah. Yes. As, and with all we've learned from science, like you you can't be an atheist. You can't believe that no one is in control. The people will come up with different explanations. They may think it's aliens. They may think it's a simulation or whatever it is. Well, there's a belief system for you too then. Right. Yeah. 
uh, we're definitely saying you're wrong, but you can't right. believe in nothing. Yeah. Right. There, there's no way this complicated system that, that can't exist without an observer. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. So if there is an observer who's observing everything, like you said, outside of time and space, how much more sense does that make? Right. Yeah. Um, and while we're thinking about these questions, uh, I know this is hearkening back to an old episode of Lit, but I think C.S. Lewis puts it really good uh, in The Great Divorce. So if it's okay, I'm just going to read like a tiny paragraph. Do it. All right. Um And then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place. And I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had known, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than the things of our country. And that the men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy that was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young tender beech leaf lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up, but my heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looked down at the daisy, I noticed I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I was also a phantom who will give me the words to express the terror of that discovery. (laughs) There is something that is more real than we can ever imagine. And it's not here. Mm -mm. This is all just temporary. Right. Yeah. I, I know. It's a lot. I, I think we miss something <clears throat> when we think Einstein didn't understand quantum mechanics because he was obviously not willing to admit that reality could be in flux. Like, he absolutely understood it. That's why he was like, no, reality has to be real. Uh, and I think when you go deep down enough, it is. You just have to find God on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Or again, you can just keep searching and searching and come up with (laughs) a really depressing nothing. (laughs) A really depressing nothing. Uh, And I'm not sitting here trying to say that the physicists were wrong. Uh, I think the theorem itself uh, is its own sort of quantum superposition being both true and not true. (laughs) Boom. Boom. I like Um, that. I mean, it's true that what they observed happened, uh, and we talked about the possibilities, but I don't think they're making it up. Um, But what I'm saying is what Einstein also suggested, that we're just scratching the surface of our universe, is also true. Yes. And yeah, we found there's a great deal of randomness and a great deal of variability um, in what we found so far. But at the root, at the deepest root, we have not seen and cannot detect and may not ever be able to is so real and so painful to us to recognize a reality so real that it surpasses human logic and understanding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how much, how much previously has been thought of as random until we were able to quantify it. 
And then we're like, oh, it wasn't as random as we thought. Nothing good is coming. No good examples are coming to mind right now. But you know what I'm saying? There have been times where they're like, oh, that's just random. Oh, that doesn't matter. And then they dig more into it. And it's like, oh, it's not random. Oh, that does matter. And so even though this still seems random, maybe that's this isn't random either, you know, and we just can't grasp it. And exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So I'm excited. I hope you guys had fun tonight. I hope this didn't. I well, I know a lot of it goes over my own head, too. So (laughs) I don't blame you if you're like low-key drooling and like bored to death sorry about that um but it's been fun no this has been awesome and i think i just appreciate you tackling this huge topic and speaking so well to us about it because yeah it was a lot but at the same time i was like oh i can i followed i followed good good i followed along (laughs) folks in the chat did everybody follow or were you like just shut up already (laughs) um no Uh, I hope you guys had a good time and we're not quite done yet because we are going to move over to just rumble and odyssey audio listeners. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it's been super fun. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Yay. Uh, so Elise, what are you bringing us next week? Oh yeah. So next week, uh, I will be discussing Josephus and the thing Mm. is, who is he? Who cares? Was he, um, a historian or was he just a really good storyteller who stuck around for a very, very long time. Why is he stuck around for a very, very long time? I'm going to tackle all these questions, give you some good stories, and I'll let you decide in the end if he was worth listening to or not. I'm so excited. I I don't know much about him, so I'm super here to learn about him. He's been mentioned in anime a lot for some reason. Nice. Um, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'm excited. And I know over on Conspiracy Pilled, uh, they're going to be talking about Project MK Naomi, uh, ethnochemical genocide, which sounds super interesting. Another thing I know absolutely nothing about. Um, but you guys should definitely go give them a follow and check them out on Wednesday. I haven't heard from Katie what she's doing, but I'm sure she's doing something awesome and crime related this week. Um, any last thoughts before we say goodbye to our audio listeners? I am just super stoked that we did this, and I think we have a lot more we can talk about and continue up with this. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. For those of you who are here live, stay tuned, because we're going to talk about quantum computing. Boop, boop, boop. Boop, boop, boop. And this is what you guys miss out, audio listeners, so be sure to like and subscribe to Quirks of Creation. Don't forget to give us a five-star review on uh, Apple Podcasts to get yourself that coupon code. Thank you so much for supporting us, and we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>